Professor Peter Harrison holds an interdisciplinary chair devoted to research and teaching in questions raised for theology by the natural, human, and social sciences. In this podcast, Professor Harrison discusses the relationship between science and religion, the myths that surround that relationship, and discusses some of the contentious contemporary issues. We'll begin by asking you, how is theology studied at Oxford? Well, theology is studied in a number of ways. Uh, First of all, I think people study contemporary Western thought about God. But there's also, uh, um, obviously, theology has a long history. It has a long history at this university. So there are historical studies of religious thought in the West that we do here. We also look at uh, other religious traditions. So we have what's the discipline of religious studies, uh, as it's called. Um, And in addition to that, we have what we might call social scientific approaches to religion, such as uh, psychology of religion or sociology of religion. Uh, There's some very interesting work going on uh, in anthropology of religion. So we have connections with some of the other faculties in the social sciences where we focus on this question of not theology specifically, but religion more broadly. Could a student focus purely on theology, or are they obliged to look at other disciplines as well? Well, to some extent, theology entails other disciplines. So it would require, to some extent, a knowledge of history, a knowledge of languages, if you're studying biblical texts, for example, and as I say, these social scientific approaches. So theology, by its nature, requires an engagement with other disciplines in the humanities. And not only Christianity? No, at this university, again, you can study Christianity, you can focus on the biblical texts in Christianity, but you can also study other religious traditions. Um, The theology faculty has strong links to some of the institutes that study uh, the Eastern religions, uh, Jewish religion, Islam, and so on. And what about your own interest? How did that emerge? My first degree was in science, and then I moved to the, to the humanities, so I've always had an interest in the interactions between science and humanities disciplines. My, my doctorate was in history, and it emerged, or it became very clear to me, that in the period that I was interested in, which is essentially the 17th century, there were very, very strong interactions between religious ideas, theological ideas, philosophical ideas, and um, approaches to the natural world. So in a sense, the connection between science and religion for someone interested in my period of history was a very natural one. And what about your research at the moment? Well, my research at the moment focuses, as I've said, on this area of the 17th century with a particular interest in England. And what I'm most interested in is a very general question about why science appears at this time in the West. Why is it that we have the scientific revolution, as historians call it? Why is it that we have this great revolutionary new approach to the natural world that that really changes our attitudes to nature, but it also changes society in a very radical way? It's a unique historical event. And what I'm interested in is what brought this about In a sense, one obvious answer is if if we look at the cultural context, uh, religion is an enormous part of that. So it's going to be be quite natural that religious ideas play into this new revolution in thought 
and my research focuses on what specifically about the religious ideas of the period contributes to this wonderful new way of, of, of looking at nature and manipulating nature, making predictions about it, drawing up uh, new theories about the operations of the natural world. Have you gotten examples of the religious ideas that did contribute? Certainly. I mean, one, one very obvious example, well, it's obvious to, to historians at any rate, is a conception like the conception that there are mathematical laws of nature. Now, this is a very new idea in the 17th century. We don't get the idea of laws of nature prior to this. And this idea of laws of nature comes directly from the religious notion that there is a god who is a legislator, who legislates both in the moral realm, that is, gives us moral laws like thou shalt not kill, but also legislates in the natural world as well. And the particular form of the laws that, that God, as it were, imposes on nature have a mathematical form. And so we find people in the 17th century, scientists like uh, Johannes Kepler and René Descartes, uh, Robert Boyle, Isaac Newton, all being quite explicit about the fact that their conception of laws of nature is that these are mathematical patterns that God has, as it were, stamped on the natural world. So their very conception of the scientific enterprise is one of attempting to discover an intelligibility that's been stamped on nature by God popular myths would have one believe that religion was antagonistic or opposed mm. to science. In the 17th century this wasn't the case. Let me say first of all I can see why there's a basis for these myths and as you say there, there is a very widespread view about an antagonism between science and religion uh, and an ongoing warfare as it were that, and that science has eventually become the victor over religion and that in a sense is the story of the West. As I say, historians of science regard this as a myth, but we understand why people believe it, because if you look at things like the Galileo affair, where we have the case of the Inquisition prohibiting the teaching of the Copernican hypothesis, this seems to be a clear example of religion hindering the progress of science. And indeed, to some extent, it is. But the question I suppose we have to ask is, first of all, whether this is typical, and I think the answer to that question is that no... This is not a, a typical event. And, and more than this, we have to ask, what are the specific circumstances that gave rise to the condemnation of Galileo? And when we look into the, the circumstances of the Galileo affair, we find a whole complex range of factors operating there. So one way, for example, to interpret the Galileo story would be to see this as a conflict within science between two competing scientific worldviews, Galileo representing the new science, but the majority of scientists at the time were opposed to the, the Galilean position. So in a sense the church was simply reinforcing the scientific consensus of the period. That said, the Galileo story has been appropriated to, in a sense, underpin a more contemporary view about the relations between science and religion. So the idea that the Galileo story actually tells us something very general about science and religion relations, this only starts to happen from about the end of the 19th century onwards. In fact, the story is really one of 
complex relations, I think one would say. Sometimes there was religious opposition to science. More often, however, they got along fairly well. And indeed, in some instances, for example, the instance I gave before with regard to laws of nature, it's the case that science gets a boost from particular religious ideas. The Galileo story, why was that appropriated in the end of the 19th century? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. One of the things that interests historians is why, how these myths come to take on the status that they do. And before I answer that, let me say there's another very interesting myth that happens that, that's invented in the 19th century, and that's the myth of the flat earth, that people in the Middle Ages used to believe that the earth was flat and then Columbus, uh, against all of the, the opposition from ecclesiastical authority, showed them to be wrong. That, that is a pure myth insofar as no one ever believed in the Middle Ages that there was a flat Earth. Um, it, it, was, it was well known that the Earth was spherical. So what's interesting about this is that we have a myth that's invented in the 19th century for a particular purpose. In the case of the flat Earth myth, some of the purpose is to, to make a hero of Columbus and the discovery of America. And so that myth actually appears in a biography of Columbus. With regard to the Galileo story, it's a little bit more complicated. The Galileo affair comes to take on this mythological status because science in the late 19th century is, for the first time, attempting to establish its independence from religion. And specifically in the case, specifically there is a professional dimension here where the clergy had dominated scientific institutions for some time and a group of individuals wanting to separate science out from theology for, for very good reasons, in a sense invent a story about an ongoing conflict so that they can distance science from theology and make it more independent. So whereas it's possible to be sympathetic to the motivations of the myth-makers, it's had an unfortunate effect in certain respects in that people cherish false beliefs about the history of science and religion. Have you examined how the distance increased, or whether it increased, after that period? That's a good question. I suppose part of this question is to do with whether the progress of science inevitably gives rise to secularisation. That is to say, as science becomes more and more sophisticated and more and more central a part of our society, whether inevitably as a consequence of that religion becomes less relevant and is eventually destined then to, to die away. To some extent we have to wait and see, I think, is the answer to that question. But certainly there are counter-examples, and the most obvious counter-example is the United States of America, which, which has a, a, obviously a very sophisticated scientific program a uh, great reputation for scientific research, yet remains amongst Western cultures clearly the most religious uh, and, and, and religious belief is thriving there. So certainly the US is, is a counterexample to the general tendency. And then the question then is what we make of this, and I think there's no necessary relation between scientific advancement and secularisation. It can be said, I think, that some people still maintain the, the kind of quaint 19th century position that in order to further the prospects of science, it's necessary to criticise religion. So that, that's not an uncommon attitude. 
still today, but I think science is doing fairly well without that kind of rhetoric. Has it generally been the case that it's the scientists who criticise religion rather than <laughs> ecclesiastics who criticise No, it? no, no that, let's, let's be clear. Um, and again, if we look at the case of America, it's very clear that there are religious critics of science there. If we look at the debates about evolution and we look at the movement of, of so-called creation science in the US and then this slightly more sophisticated version, intelligent design, to some extent, these are not so much anti-scientific as anti-one aspect of science. It's quite specifically anti-evolutionary movements. And so certainly I wouldn't want to say that all of the portrayal of a conflict between science and religion comes on the part of scientists. This view is also promoted by these anti-evolutionary movements who claim a religious basis for their objections to this particular scientific theory. So from both sides I think there, there are attempts to make this polarisation and to some extent these sides feed into each other so that the anti-evolutionists when they hear that there's a, an opposition between science and religion decide that they would rather retain their religious beliefs than accept a set of scientific views that they are, that they are told uh, is incompatible with their religious beliefs. And by the same token, scientists, not surprisingly, uh, see these anti-evolutionary movements as a threat to science, and, and particularly to science education, and they're right to do so. But then the question is, what's the appropriate response to to these, and it seems to me that conciliation is, is far better. And so there is a middle ground that says actually if, if you think carefully about something like evolutionary theory, uh, that it's not necessarily in conflict with religious beliefs, um, any more than, for example, Big Bang cosmology is. Has it been the case that in evolutionary theory, the anti-evolutionists are adopting scientific language is perhaps that's what's irritating the scientists more than the theory itself. I think you're right to say that to some extent we see in these anti-evolutionary movements not an anti-science attitude per se, but an appropriation of scientific language and scientific theories. Much of this, I think, is a creature of the peculiarities of constitutional law in the United States where you cannot teach religion in schools and therefore to introduce notions like creation and design they need to be cloaked in scientific language. So I think that it's a, the historical accident of the US Constitution that means that these anti-evolutionary movements cloak themselves in scientific language. But I think it's also the case that to some extent there is a kind of high view of science that in these movements that says unless we have scientific status for our religious beliefs then um, they suffer as a consequence. Do you think that's the case? No, I don't. Personally, I, I, I don't. I, I don't think religious beliefs need the imprimatur of the scientific community. But I think it's important that religious beliefs not fly in the face of uh, the scientific consensus. And again, the story of history, I think, is that although theology doesn't necessarily retreat from particular scientific positions, theologians through the centuries have generally found ways of accommodating 
scientific developments within their theological conceptions. And indeed, much of the story of theology in the Middle Ages is precisely that, the incorporation of philosophical and scientific conceptions into a theological framework. That seems to imply that theological belief needs to be fluid and evolve over time. To some extent, yes, it does. But the other implication is that science itself is something that's constantly changing. If you wanted to take a pejorative position, you'd say that the story of science is a story of successive failures of theory. Obviously, the positive spin is that we're making progress. And in the philosophy of science, this is a contested view. What do we make of the fact that the history of science is a story of one theory replacing one that's not successful? And what follows for our religious beliefs as a consequence of this? And one approach would be to say, well, actually, we should keep theology at arm's length from science because science is, by its very nature, progressive and hence in constant change. And a good historical example of the dangers of too close a relationship would be what happened over the 17th and 18th centuries when the idea that was proposed in science that natural history is about studying design in the natural world meshed very neatly with a theological view about God as the designer. So natural history and, and, and theology got very cosy and then Darwin comes along and says, well, actually, no, we can explain design without reference to a deity and then this cosy relationship breaks up in a way, I think, that we're still feeling the ramifications of. We're still feeling the aftershocks of that unfortunate divorce. But the divorce was a consequence of perhaps too close a connection between theology and a science that by its nature changes over time. So on the one hand you might say, yes, theology to some extent needs to be adaptable. But on the other hand, it's probably prudent for theology to to some extent, remain at arm's length from sciences which, by their nature, undergo transformations over time. What about religious education? Would you say that still has a role in schools, for instance? I have no doubt that religious education has, has a role in, in schools. Religion is, is so integral a part of, of our heritage in the West that it seems to me that it's crucial for for students to be aware of their cultural heritage. And more than that, I think that the teaching of religions is crucial because it's, it's part of helping people to understand where others in the world are coming from. So to that extent, it seems to me a very important part of education, as, of course, science is. And then, of course, there's the question of whether and to what extent these things interact. But it seems to me that it's in the context of religious education that it's possible to engage in broader questions that can't be asked within the sciences. And they're the fundamental questions that the religions have always asked about, and they're questions about what are the origins of of the universe? Uh, Is there a purpose in life? What are the foundations of our morality? And, And I'm not saying that religion is is the only way to address these these questions 
But it seems to me that these big questions, which are the questions that the religions have always concerned themselves with, are questions that to some extent are outside the boundaries of any other of the disciplines, with the possible exception of philosophy. Would this ideal of a religious education be, as far as one possibly can, objective or even secular? Or is there a role for a specific religious foundation? This is a very, this is a very difficult question. It's obviously a vexed question in the light of discussions here in this country about faith schools and so on. And the, the program that I've outlined is essentially the, the presentation of religion from a dispassionate and non-normative perspective. The issue about whether people should have the right to have their children educated in a religious tradition is again a tough question. It seems to me that probably the answer is to some extent yes, they should. One of the things that we should be able to do in a liberal society is to recognise that there are a range of religious viewpoints, that is to say people subscribe to different religions or none, that to some extent they should be able to see their children schooled in the values that they hold dear. In the case of faith schools, would you also advocate that the schools teach that there are opposing views and what these views are? Well, certainly, yes. But again, there are faith schools and there are faith schools. I, I, I think it's very difficult to make generalisations so that I, I wouldn't want to say I'm all in favour of faith schools. I think it's a question of what, what's actually happening in, in these schools. I mean, it seems to me that there are many, many Church of England schools in the country that are doing a terrific job quite unproblematically. And, and, and to say, you know, faith schools are a bad thing it simply doesn't square with the reality of what's going on in many faith schools. On the other hand, it's very clear that there are areas for concern in certain faith schools, and that's something that shouldn't be denied either. With students coming up to Oxford to read theology, do they generally have religious belief? To be honest, I don't know. I think many of them do, because often what makes people, what motivates people to the formal study of theology is a personal interest in religion uh, and, and theological issues. So I think certainly for many that's true, uh, but it's not a necessary precondition for the study of theology.